Uh, good morning, everyone. I, for those who don't recognize me, uh, or this is your first time here, my name is Justin Kraft. I'm the Minister of Youth over the Youth here at CBC, and I've been given the privilege to preach this morning, um, as I did a couple months ago. Um, and like then, I was given free reign as long as it was out of the Bible. And sometimes that could be a little bit more difficult than just being assigned a passage, because with being assigned a passage, you know exactly what you have to teach on. And so you could just plow right ahead into the study of it while having your choice in the matter. It's an extra step of, okay, what do I want to focus on? And believe me, that step can sometimes be as long or the longest part of the whole process. Thankfully, though, uh, as was the case last time I preached, I knew exactly what I wanted to preach on. And that's because there are some passages in the Bible that just stick with you for whatever reason. We all have those passages, they're probably very different for each one of us, um, and I'm particularly not talking about those passages that we go about intentionally memorizing, maybe for evangelism purposes or things like that. I'm talking about those passages that we read, or we heard a message on maybe even just once that just hit us like a ton of bricks, and we remember with unusual clarity. Um, usually these become our favorite sections of the Bible as we think about them over the years, and for me, those passages are the ones that I can just clearly picture in my mind, uh, where the imagery of the words of Scripture paint this 8K technicolor picture, right, painting. It's like going to an art gallery and gazing at the beauty of what you're seeing. And I don't know if it's a personality thing with me or not or what, uh, but a lot of the ones that I love, that's, that I can see in my mind's eye, are, are the ones with sorrow mixed in. Um, the sufferings of Job as he's sitting in a garbage heap scraping himself with pottery. I can see it. Psalm 42, the deer panting for the water. I see the deer, it has its tongue out, in case you didn't know, because it's thirsty. I can see the crystal clear brook of the water passing by, so pants my soul for you, O God. Hosea 11, in the picture of a father teaching his son how to walk and his sorrow over his son's current disobedience, it's vivid. So too with the man born blind in John chapter 9. I don't need a television show to see the dusty street, to see this broken man holding out his hand, asking for the littlest bit of charity to get some bread that day, but only hearing out of the darkness what was probably a familiar question to him. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I can also picture the inexpressible joy he received moments later when he first sees the light and as the burden of his heart rolls away. The words of scripture alone paint a vivid enough picture of that. And it's that picture of light and the darkness associated with his blindness that is the major theme in the chapter before us and which is reflected on the, the outline and the title of today's sermon. The church history buffs in the room, uh, likely, and in the courtyard likely recognized that the title of the sermon isn't original. I didn't come up with it. I stole it. It's brazen. It's open. I'm proud of it, even. I swindled it from the reformers who use this Latin phrase, post-tenebris lux, after darkness, light. They used it as a motto to describe the new era that they found themselves in, that God had given them after hundreds of years of the heavy burden of graceless Tradition and a stranglehold on the word of God, the light of the gospel, was once again bursting through in glorious fashion. Now the reformers took this phrase from the Latin translation of Job 17.12, but I thought it was also fitting for what's before us uh, for this chapter. But not only that, I thought it was also fitting for just the description of what happens in all those who come to faith in Christ. Because though the healing of this man's physical sight is the crux of the conflict that we see in the chapter. It is the spiritual side of both the man and the Pharisees. That is really what John is getting us to focus on as we read it. And then as a bonus, I thought it was especially fitting uh, for the Christmas season, since we're celebrating the birth of Christ. We celebrate the light of the world coming to die and rescue his people from the present darkness. And so as we go about this passage, I'd like you to think about this one question. Uh, may sound strange initially, and the question is, am I blind? Now that 
Again, that seems pretty obvious. Maybe it's even a foolish question to you because whether you're physically blind or not is abundantly evident. But the question isn't referring to your physical state. It's in reference to your spiritual one. That makes the question a whole lot more complicated because how can you tell if you're spiritually blind, whatever that means? Well, it's really the same sort of tell as with physical blindness. Do you know what light is? If you're in a darkened room or maybe a cave and someone turns on a flashlight, can you recognize the difference in the room or the cave? Just as you can tell that this room is physically illuminated right now, can you tell that the true light of Christ has come into your heart and soul? Because here's the truth. Every single person in this room and listening were born or was born blind. Like this man, every one of us needs or needed a miraculous healing of our sight. And so related to this question of am I blind is also the question of have I seen the light? And with that, do you think you've seen the light? And so can see, but really you're just still fumbling around in the darkness. Or do you actually know that you've seen the light? Because when you did, everything changed. That's a lot more to ponder than you initially thought in the question, right? And so in the bulletin, I gave you all a simplistic outline to help you track as we're going through this massive chapter. Uh, Verses 1 to 12, the works of the light are evident. Light is light. Turn on a light, you know. You don't need somebody to tell you a light has come on. You just recognize it for what it is. Secondly, verses 13 to 14, the witnesses of the light must hold fast against the light's enemies. And we might think, how could anybody hate light? Well, as Jesus told Nicodemus during their nightly meeting, those who love the darkness hate the light. There's going to be opposition to the light and those who have seen it and now know the true state of themselves, others in the world. And so they must hold fast in the face of that opposition as this man is going to. And then thirdly, verses 35 to 41, what is the work of the light? Well, the work of the light is to heal and to expose. They both give sight to the blind while exposing those who believe that they can already see. And so this is a long chapter. I'm going to read through it all, though, for us, uh, because it's the word of God that has the power, and it's, in my words, only have an effect as much as they are rooted in it. Uh, I'll try to move us along quickly so that our nursery workers don't kill me. Uh, But before we get into the passage proper, um, let me pray, and then we'll just talk about a little bit of context. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for this morning and the privilege you've given us to study your word. I pray that you would be with me this morning, uh, that you would give me the confidence to preach boldly and uh, hold fast to the word that you have given us. And I pray for all else in this room, that you would work in them through this message and through my fumbling through it uh, for their good and their benefit. And we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So light is a massive theme in the Gospel of John. It's in the very beginning of it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Apostle John then talks about John the Baptist being a witness of the light. And then... Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus in that famous section of chapter 3, and a major talking point between them is of Christ being the light, which I just referenced a second ago, and the enemies of him. And then a chapter before ours, chapter 8, during the Feast of Booths, and historically that feast had a ceremony where they illumined the temple with these massive torches, and so it had a major light component to it, Jesus stands up in the middle of the treasury of the temple and declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it's those two connections that we see light being associated with life, and then darkness being associated with death that we need to remember. You don't have the light, you don't have life. If you can't see the light, or even recognize the light, then you are in the darkness, you are without hope, you are dead, and you need salvation from it. And so at the end of chapter 8, the light of the world has just declared that before Abraham was, he was, which the Jews 
full well knew what Jesus was claiming to be, the I am, and so they picked up stones to kill him. But it wasn't his time, and so Jesus hid himself and left the temple. And chapter 9 picks up right from that. So as Jesus leaves the temple, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, and now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees asked again how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to them again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he say to you? What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. As we think of the beginning of the the chapter, how many roads do you think were in Jerusalem at the time, especially roads coming to and from the temple? I, I would guess a lot. And yet, as Jesus passed by, he saw, he saw this man who was born blind from birth. This man doesn't see Jesus, but he probably hears a group approaching his area, reaching out his hand to ask for some charity from a group coming back from the temple. Perhaps these devout people will desire to practice their faith. But he instead hears one of the group asking the teacher among them a question. With how the Pharisees end their argument with this man later on, 
I highly doubt this is the first time the man has heard something like this in his maybe 20, 30 years of living and begging on the street. Question, who sinned? Whose fault is it that God punished or judged this man with his blindness? Was it his parents or was it him? I know if I was this man, I would have asked this question myself. I would have struggled with it. I would have prayed over it. What did I do, Lord, to deserve this lot? Why am I suffering in this way? Thought of being a burden on his parents, the shame, the guilt he's felt by it, being seen as unclean, broken, never being able to really be a full part of his community around him. When we suffer, others around us suffer, can sin be the cause? The answer is absolutely. Either ours or other sins can lead to tremendous suffering in our lives. But that's not the only cause for suffering in the world. And so when we see somebody suffering or someone comes to us in counsel because a traumatic incident has just occurred in their lives, we have to be careful about being presumptuous and knowing the secret things of God. Jesus answers the disciples' question by saying that the man's blindness isn't due to his sin nor his parents' sin. Well, then, Jesus, why was this man born blind? When we think about this, another ditch in the road of suffering and blaming it on as a direct result of sin, personal sin, the other side of that is the temptation into declaring that bad things just happen randomly or without a purpose, as if God has no control over the situation. It's just the consequence of the fall, and now God is here, but it's after the fact, and he's just here to pick up the broken pieces However, the truth of the matter is, and you can keep reading here, go to the book of Job to see this, is that our God is absolutely sovereign over all things. And so because of that, there is nothing that happens in existence that is without purpose. And that is the ultimate comfort to suffering of any kind. There is tremendous purpose in all things, including our suffering. The thing with that that gets us, though, and which eggs us into those two ditches is that we are finite creatures and we don't know what the purpose is behind our suffering, let alone others. We want to know, and we want to know right now. But in this life, we may never know. But you, you know what's even amazing about that? It's that even our ignorance is purposed by God for our good. What does the ignorance do? Well, it causes us to trust more in our Father who knows our situation, who has counted every tear, and who we know is making all things right through the blood of his Son. But this man, he's a little bit more privileged, as far as a blind man being born blind is privileged more than us, because he gets to hear exactly why he was born blind. It's not due to his sin, at least not due to his or his parents' sin, We might be able to trace it back to Adam's sin, right? But the reason this man in particular was born blind was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so reading that, we might be tempted to become cynical. You're telling me that this man had to suffer for potentially 30 years, begging on the street, being a social pariah, all just so that God could glorify himself in this healing? And the answer is yes. And hallelujah that it is. Our phantom detractor, our cynic, asked that question as if the glorification of God is not why everything was created in the first place, and as if it is wholly separate from the good of this man. I can say with confidence, based off what we learn from this fellow in this chapter, that he would have gladly suffered 50 more years of blindness if he knew that the end result would have been the same as what's going to happen to him next. Likewise, I would even uh, go even bolder and say that this man would have gladly died blind if it meant that the greater work that was performed in, in him this day still occurred. For this man received something far greater than mere physical sight. The greater work is that he sees something greater than what can be seen with the eye. Christ goes on to say that they, meaning him and his disciples, must work while it is still day. What does he mean by that? Well, this is a common Johnism, if you will. He uses the words day and night throughout his gospel account to signify Christ's earthly mission. 
before the crucifixion, and that's the day when he's walking around, he's healing people, he's teaching. And then the night is the time of his crucifixion up through his resurrection. That's the the night, the power of darkness. And there's a key phrase in the Last Supper, Judas went out and it was night. That's the signifier. And so while Jesus is still on earth, before he goes to redeem his people, there are things he says need to be done. They're on a divine timetable and there's a lot of work still to be accomplished. He then says that as long as he is in the world, he is the light of the world. And so that's a little confusing as well. Does he mean that since he has since ascended into heaven that he's no longer the light of the world? Well, no, that's not what Christ means here. He's still the light, but he's no longer present physically on the earth. But Christ is still in the world. He's in the world in and through his disciples, us. And his message that he's given us, his gospel Chapter 5, verse 14 of Matthew, he calls us the light of the world. And so Christ had works he needs to perform while he was here, the chief among them being our redemption, and then he passes the baton off to his disciples to continue his work. And you could look at the book of Acts to see what Christ, the light of the world, continued to do after his ascension, how he continued to illuminate the dark parts of this earth. And that baton has since been passed from the disciples on and on throughout history to us. And so having said these things, Jesus spits in the dirt, wipes mud on the man's eyes, and then sends him to a pool where the man will be healed. And I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty weird. Why does Jesus use this process to heal this man? That's my question. Jesus could have instantly healed this man. He didn't have to touch him. He didn't have to get dirty. He did it with thousands of other people before, some of whom weren't even in his physical presence. And so why the mud? Why send this guy off? And we can get spiritual. We can try and say that the mud harkens back to the creation story and the dirt that God used to Adam and now Christ is reforming man. Uh, It might be a thing, who knows? But I think the better way to go about answering the question is just using the clues that John gives us. And then also thinking about the perspective of the man who's being healed. So first, the context clues. John clearly wants us to know that Jesus isn't just sending this man to a random fountain in the city or a puddle. John takes extra care to make sure that we know that the name of this pool means sent. And so as I just read it, what was the central connection or contention in the man's coming argument with the Pharisees? Well, the contention was over where Jesus came from. Who sent him? The answer is in the very act Jesus uses to heal this man. The sent one, Jesus, sending a man to a pool named Sent to be healed in a way that that has never happened before in the history of the world. Where else could Jesus have come from than heaven? Who else could have sent him other than God? And so that's the context clue. Second, thinking about this from the man's perspective, the man is seeing nothing in all this. All that the man is contributing to this is hearing what's happening. Likely there's a greater dialogue that happens, which John doesn't record because the blind, blind man will know that it's specifically Jesus who's healed him. But one minute he hears a group discussing his situation. He hears something from the rabbi about his plight, his suffering that he's probably never heard of before. Sounds like mercy. It sounds like the care of the father toward one of his downtrodden children. It sounds like there's maybe a purpose behind why he's blind other than judgment. And then in the next minute, he maybe senses some one of them come close to him. Hear that person spit on the ground, scrape around in the dirt, and then feel some pressure, some substance on his eyelids. Then he hears the voice of that same rabbi tell him to go. Wash in the pool of Siloam. Notice that there is no promise of healing in that command, nor is there even a statement of what that mud could possibly be for. Again, in the larger conversation, Jesus could have told the man the purpose behind the mud, but John doesn't tell us that. Even in the man's retelling of the event to his friends and his Pharisees, he doesn't say that. The man's consistent testimony through all of this is that he just told me to go, I went, and I came back seeing. But the man did hear that his blindness was for the express purpose 
that the works of God might be performed in him. That's like the vaguest sliver of hope that you can grasp onto. But I believe he connected the dots and grasped onto it with all that he had. Just as the people of Nineveh connected the dots of Jonah's message of destruction is coming. In this act of mud and in this command to go without any sort of explicit reward, Jesus is causing this man to act out in faith. He may not know the full scope of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing for him. In fact, we know he doesn't by what he says to the Pharisees, but he's seen enough. By faith, he goes to the pool, he stoops down, begins scooping water into his eyes, then instantly something is different. Instead of the normal pitch blackness he was used to, the black has a slightly different tint, one that he's never known before. And then he gets the mud off, he opens his eyes, and his whole existence is changed. Maybe, for the first, maybe the first thing he sees is his own reflection in the water, seeing the color of his eyes for the first time. The joy of that moment must have been beyond words, but John just gives us this simple statement at the end of verse 7. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now putting ourselves into the man's shoes, when something good happens to us, especially if it's on the scale of being able to see when we couldn't see before, I would expect the first reaction we'd have is to go and tell everyone that we can that this just happened to us. Share in my joy. Connecting us to that further and trying not to put the cart before the horse, shouldn't that joy always define us? Shouldn't our joy in what Christ has done for us be that palpable in our lives? But the man comes back And we get this comical scene with the neighbors arguing over whether or not this is really the man that they've known. Yeah, it's him. Uh, No, it's his evil twin from the mirror dimension. (laughs) Formerly blind man's going, no, it's it's me. Hey, Steve, thanks for that shekel you gave me yesterday. I, I got some bread with it. This kind of thing doesn't happen often, right? In fact, it's the first time this something like this has ever happened in the history of the world. And so they ask him, well, if it's you, how are you healed? The man says, Jesus put mud on my eyes, sent me to go to Siloam, and I came back seeing. And that naturally leads to the question of, okay, then where's this Jesus guy that did this? And this is the part that struck me. The man says, I don't know. And so here's another reason why Jesus healed the man in the way that he did. He did it so that he himself can slip away. And the question then is, why would Jesus do that? And the reason is that the works of God might be displayed in this man. As we go through the Pharisees' interrogation of this man and this man's defense of Jesus, remember this, that this man has not physically seen Jesus yet. And yet at the end of all of it, Jesus is going to say to him, you have seen him. But his neighbors are flabbergasted, and so they go to get the Pharisees, and our natural reaction is, why would you ever do that? Uh, But I don't think we can read anything nefarious in this act. Yes, the Pharisees are awful. Yes, they openly hate Jesus. Yes, the neighbors probably know this, but they are the teachers of the people. They are these people's spiritual leaders, and something miraculous, unexplainable has just happened in their midst to one of their own, and they don't know how to comprehend it. And so who would you turn to in that situation? Well, you'd go to your pastor. I think that's exactly what these people are doing. But there is a problem, and that problem is in verse 14. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Red flag, we all know the drill with Jesus healing and on the Sabbath and the Pharisees' legalistic and misinterpreted view of the Sabbath. Austin just pre- preached on one such incident a couple weeks ago. And so we read this verse and we know... There's, there's conflict of Bruin. Pharisees hear this from the neighbors. They hate Jesus, and he's already caused a massive scene this day, this very day. And so they begin gathering the facts of the case. How can we stick something to him? They ask the man to recount what happened, and the man doesn't shy away from the truth. He's not abated from it. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Just a simple statement of what he knows, the facts which elicits some of the Pharisees to instantly say, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Can you feel the defensiveness in them? 
There's no desire for the truth. There's no wonder at the obvious work of God in their midst. There's, though a light has been turned on, they're still acting as if the room is pitch black. They think they see the reality of the situation clearly, and despite the abundant evidence contrary to their beliefs that they're going to receive throughout this conversation, they will refuse to see. Some others in their party, though, at least have the common decency to ponder the situation for half a second. How can a sinner perform this sign? And John uses that word sign very specifically in his gospel. His purpose statement for writing at the end of the book in chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are acts, these are miracles that prove the validity of who Jesus is and who sent him, that you may believe in him and be saved. They are works that clearly come from God. And the Pharisees, they're using this word with a similar sort of meaning. They're they're not trying to get you to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, but they're using it to describe an act that clearly comes from God. It's a sign from God. God is holy. He wouldn't empower a man to publicly sin in this way. So then maybe what Jesus has done isn't a sin, and we should discuss this further, and they do. They go back and forth on it without any progress, so they just, all right, well, we'll ask the guy this happened to about his opinion. And the opinion is, he's a prophet. With what we know of the Pharisees and a certain decree that they made, which this man is likely aware of, I don't think he's ignorant of it, this answer is bold. And each successive thing that we're going to hear from this man, he becomes a greater and ex- greater example to us of someone who has come to know the light and who refuses to curtail his testimony out of fear of the darkness. The man is right in his answer, though it's not a complete answer. Jesus is a prophet. In fact, he is the prophet Moses prophesied of. He is the one sent from God, but he's so much more. But this man's on the right track, and he's going to get further down that track as we continue on. But the Jews, which in this context clearly refer to the Pharisees, they don't like that answer, of course. And so they turn to disprove the miracle. We're not getting anything out of the man so far. Let's just debunk the whole thing. As a, as a charade. The guy must be lying about being born blind. Let's get the parents in here. They'll tell the truth. And so they ask him, is this your son whom you claim was born blind? If he was blind, then how does he now see? It just doesn't happen. The first part of that question is answered with a confident yes. This is our boy. He was born blind, and now he sees. He's right there. But they dodge the last part out of fear of the Pharisees with John telling us exactly why they fear the Pharisees. Because they could answer this question. They know the answer to the question. I would imagine that the first people this man went to when he came back seeing was his parents. Mom, Dad, I can see you. I can see. But the Pharisees' declaration that if anyone confesses that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah of the line of David promised by God, if anybody did that, they would be thrown out of the synagogue. They'd be excommunicated, and in this society, they'd be utterly cut off from Jewish life. They'd essentially be a Gentile, family, friends, business, all gone in a statement. That's a lot to lose. And so the parents allow their fear to prevent them from acknowledging what they know to be true, or at least what they've heard of the truth. Instead of just answering the question truthfully the way their son did, which wouldn't even require them of breaking this farce of a law, they instead throw their son back under the pharisaical bus. And so at this point in the narrative, we've seen three different reactions to the light. The first two are connected. And the Pharisees, both in their response to the man's testimony in this decree, we've seen a group that is utterly unwilling or unable to recognize that a light has been turned on. They already think they see, and so they reject any notion to the contrary, as if they would want to be proved foolish. They want anything to do with Christ or his witnesses. Similarly, in the parents, we see a pair that is too afraid of social repercussions from those who reject the light to state what their consciences are telling them. Now, I'm pretty sure a light has come on. 
They're too afraid of that. They too have rejected the light. But then we have the formerly blind man who has truly seen the light and is steadfastly bold in proclaiming the truth of what he's seen. He's known darkness. He's known it his entire life. And this is something else. And no matter what else happens to him, he's not going back to the darkness. Now the Pharisees, they didn't get what they wanted from the parents, so they go back to the man in the hopes that maybe they can pressure him to put it on public record that Jesus is who they say Jesus is. They tell the man to give glory to God, and John loves his irony. The statement means tell the truth. It was first used in Joshua with Achan and his sin. Give glory to God. They want the man to tell the truth and give glory to God with a lie. That's irony number one. What's even more ironic, though, is that the man is going to give glory to God with the truth, but it's not what the Pharisees want. Uh, They're not going to like that. And so they tell him, we know that this man is a sinner. Well, case closed. We can wash our hands of the entire situation. We don't need any more evidence. Even though every single piece of evidence that we receive such, such, such far is contrary to that statement, they are certain that they can see the truth. Jesus is a sinner. Now, the man's response, we have to bear with him for a second because he isn't a theological scholar. He's not even literate. He's blind. He thinks that Jesus is a prophet, but whether Jesus is a sinner, he doesn't know. And he's not going to go beyond what he knows. He's going to stick to what he does know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. That's one of my favorite sentences in the entire Bible. Superseded by the last thing that we hear this man say, but there's a lot of things that I don't know. But one thing that I do know is that though I was blind, Now I see. I was dead in the sins and trespasses in which I once walked, an enemy to God and unable to rectify my situation. But God made me alive in Christ through his abundant grace. Do we have the boldness to share that simple testimony? To stick to what we know Christ has done? Not to a subjective feeling of that worked for me and maybe it can work for you, but a pointing to an objective reality change that is as obvious as turning a light on in a dark room. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I am alive in Christ. I was lost, but now I am found. Pharisees, of course, don't like that answer, and so they ask him once again how Jesus healed him. Maybe they're trying to see if his story will change so they can label him a liar and be done with it. But I think the man sort of understands what their game is, and he turns the tables on them. As I said, he gets more impressive the more he speaks. He answered them, I've, already, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? And so the, the crux of it is, what's your motivation for asking about this incident again, asking me again? Are you genuinely seeking the truth, or do you have another motive? Let's get that on public record. And then this last part, do you also want to become one of his disciples? Also, the man desires to be a disciple of Christ, though he's never seen him. And yet he's seen him. He says this fully knowing the Pharisee's threat against anyone in Jesus' corner. And the Pharisees respond to this predictably. It's sad, but predictable. They're angry at even the suggestion that they would want anything to do with Jesus, let alone be his disciple. They revile the man. They insult him with this sick burn. You are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. Top that. May that be the greatest charge or insult that anyone can ever sling at us. Yeah, well, you're a disciple of Jesus. You can be his disciple, but we're followers of someone else. They're followers of Moses, the guy that they know who was sent from God. And so time out here, freeze frame. How do they know that Moses was sent by God? How do they know that God had spoken to Moses? Well, they know through the works that Moses performed. The works that were evident 
the works that clearly showed a divine backing in which testified to the veracity of his claims that God was actually speaking to him and that he sent him. But as far as this man, whom we won't even name, we don't even know where he comes from. It's more of John's wonderful irony. First of all, they're not true disciples of Moses. That's a lie because Jesus told them earlier that Moses wrote of him. If they truly believed Moses, they would believe him. But they don't, and so they're not true disciples of Moses. Second, these Pharisees are speaking truer than they know. They mean this statement in the sense that Jesus has come from someplace or someone other than God. We know that Moses has come from God, him we don't know. But the truth about this statement is that they truly don't know where he's come from because they know neither him nor his father. They know nothing of the kingdom of light. And so, of course, they don't know where he comes from. And the man's response to all this is is golden. This is an amazing thing. If you truly don't know, if your hostility toward Jesus merely comes from a place of ignorance, then let me tell you what I know. To be true. Here are the facts. First, as you guys yourselves already testified to, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. The unrepentant, the wicked, the idolatrous, that's true. Proverbs 15, 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The prayers of the wicked are useless. God only listens to prayers offered to him in genuine faith. But if anyone is a worshiper of God, genuine, loving him, truly loving him, the proof of which is shown in their obedience to his will, God listens to him. That's fact one. Fact two. Never since the world began has it ever been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. That's true. This was a world first. Elijah never did this. Elisha never did this. Even the main man Moses himself never did this. But God did promise that he was going to send someone who would do this. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. That's fact two. Fact three, one plus one equals two. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Yet this man did something, so what does that say about where he comes from? It's obvious, it's abundantly clear. But the Pharisees utterly reject the truth, and we come full circle back to the question in verse 2. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? Why would they ever think this? It's because he was born blind, and so that can only come as a result of God's judgment on him. This is what the man has heard his whole life, and just when he receives his sight, just when he is finally able to join his family and friends and be part of society, he's cast out for bearing witness to the light, for merely saying what he knows to be true, for not even breaking the Pharisees' ridiculous law in the first place. And so though he had just gained a community that he had probably longed for his entire life, he was now once again all alone, cast out in the outer darkness. After vanishing from the story, for much of it, here comes the light, though, once again. How sweet verse 35 is. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The kindness, the mercy, the love of the Savior. It's an example of what he's going to teach in the very next chapter, that he is the good shepherd who knows his sheep by name, who seeks them out and brings them safely to his fold. Word got back to Jesus that the man had been healed, that he had healed, had been kicked out of the synagogue, and Jesus seeks him out. In both interactions with Jesus, the man didn't seek out Jesus either time. He wasn't a part of the crowds that flocked around Jesus looking for healing, nor did he have any idea where Jesus was after he was excommunicated. But Jesus sought him out both times that the works of God might be displayed in him. And he finds the man and asks him a question that seems out of the blue. Do you believe in the Son of Man? To put the question another way, do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe in the Christ? Do you believe in this figure in Daniel 7 who was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him? 
The title that if anyone attributed to or wondered if this was Jesus, the Pharisees would kick out of the synagogue what he's already feeling the repercussions of. The man, as we, we have seen throughout this example, throughout his example, never goes beyond what he knows. To believe, you need an object of belief. And to have true belief, you need to truly know who it is you're believing in. That's why Jesus says later in John that eternal life can be defined this way, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so the man thus humbly answers, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Remember that his desire was to become a disciple of Jesus. Remember also that before this moment, he had never laid eyes on this Jesus, whom he is now face to face with, seeing for the first time. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. In the Greek, that's the perfect tense. Happened in the past. It's an ongoing state into the present. Though he was physically blind when he first saw Jesus, by faith he saw him. It's been proven in his action and his words. In going to the pool and in standing firm in the truth of what he's seen. You've seen the Son of Man. I am him. I am the sent one. I am the light. I am the Christ. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Greater than the man being healed of his physical blindness and being able to see for the next 40 and 50 years and then going down to the grave, the light of Christ healed his spiritual blindness and gave him the gift of eternal life. And knowing who was in earshot of their conversation, Jesus continued and said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Why did Jesus come into this world of which we are celebrating in this season? Well, in part for judgment. Merry Christmas. As I've repeatedly said this morning, the the work of the light is evident. If there is light in a room and you're in that room, you know that there's light in the room. That is, unless you are blind. As I said in the introduction, we're all born blind. We wouldn't know light if it was as bright as a neon sign that said, this is what light is. We're like Bane, born in the darkness and molded by it. We love the dark because that's all we know. It perfectly hides our sinful state. It hides the reality of our condition. And we're perfectly content with the works that lie to us, that tell us we can see. But then we hear this thing called the gospel. We come into contact with this person named Jesus Christ who lived perfectly according to the standard of God, who performed all these miraculous works that could only come from God. And we hear of his death for sinners, that he was put forward as the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for sin, but that God raised him on the third day and made him to appear to eyewitnesses who became his witnesses in the world. Witnesses of the light in Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, and out to the ends of the earth. His person and work is evident in what it is and who he is, that he's different, that he's bright, And his message exposes how filthy we truly are and how we've come so far short of that standard that we know we need to meet. And that then produces one of two things. Either like this formerly blind man, it produces a belief in this new reality that you've been made known to and a desire to never leave the light because now you realize that you can truly see for the first time and you don't want to go back to the darkness You were blind before, how foolish you were to think that you could see, but now you see, or it produces a reaction like the Pharisees in the last few verses of this chapter. Are you saying we're blind? And Jesus tells them that question, which implies that they think they can see, proves their guilt. You've not recognized the obvious light in front of you, but you continue to live in darkness. You can't see your hand in front of your face, let alone the shining brilliance of the Son of Man speaking to you right now, yet you claim to see. If you just humbly admitted that you're blind, that, you'd have, that you have no knowledge of the light, and that you need spiritual illumination, you wouldn't be guilty of the sin of which you are now committing, which is an utter rejection of the true light. And thus the question for us today, which I asked you to ponder earlier, is am I blind? Have you recognized that from birth you were born blind, spiritually lost and needing salvation? 
that like this man who was born blind from birth, you are utterly reliant on the kindness of another to provide something that you do not have or have the capability of providing yourself. If the light has caused you to see this morning, then go to God in prayer. As the hymn, Christ or else I die, sings, Thou dost promise to forgive all who in thy Son believe. Lord, I know thou cannot lie. Give me Christ or else I die. Go to the Father in humble prayer for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of Christ and you will be saved in an instant. A new creation, a new heart, a new nature, an undeniable work of the light as Jesus says later in John chapter 12. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So do not remain in darkness today. For those in this room, like this man, who have already received their sight and been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, then like this man, go and tell others the simple but profound testimony that though you were blind, now you see. Be bold. Letting your testimony and the tested genuineness of your faith in and love of Christ pierce through the darkness of the world like a beacon to the rest of Christ's sheep out there that he is faithfully gathering into his fold. Knowing that after this dark and gloomy world has dissolved like snow, you will live on an earth where we will need neither lamp nor sun, because he will be our light and you will reign forever with him. Let's pray. Dear gracious Father, we thank you for your abundant mercy in sending the light of the world to us that we may see. We pray, Lord, for your grace you would cause those of us in this room, Lord, even if us, if we've maybe fooled ourselves into thinking that we can see, that you would remove our blindness, that we may be able to behold the light of Christ and be saved, that you would transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the light of your glorious Son, so that one day we may reign with him in the light of his face. Help us this day, Lord, for those of us who can truly see, who have truly beheld the light and have come back seeing, to be bold in our testimony, Lord, to hold fast to it, knowing the reality of this world, knowing the danger of this darkness, that it is death, and desiring all to see the light as we have. Give us courage this week, Lord, to be lights in this world. And give us boldness to proclaim your gospel to all who would hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.